This is exactly right. So many of us are scared to do certain things, but when we do them, we show ourselves that when you bet on yourself, that's the best feeling. When you take that running leap, it's not about success or it's not about, you know, it's about saying to yourself, you are worth this risk. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, With increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Daughterhood and Motherhood with our guest, Maya Schombag-Lang. Maya is the author of What We Carry, named a New York Times Editor's Choice, an Amazon Best Memoir of 2020, and on several international Best of 2020 lists. She's also the author of The 16th of June, named a must-read novel by CBS and InStyle, and long-listed for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize. Maya's essays have been widely published and anthologized. In 2021, the American Civil Rights Museum named her a woman you should know. She currently serves as VP of Editorial and Strategy at Zibby Books, a newly founded publishing company featured in Forbes, Publishers Weekly, and Business Insider. And she's also a competitive weightlifter, which we're going to be talking about. Uh, Lastly, what you need to know about her is after graduating magnum cum laude from Swarthmore College, she earned her master's from NYU and then her PhD in comparative literature from SUNY Stony Brook. She's a passionate teacher and editor, and she loves working with established and aspiring writers alike. Maya lives outside of New York City with her daughter. Maya, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. So I loved your book. Um, I, I was, I was on, I felt I was on your journey and, uh, we're going to get into your journey, uh, today and how much it has taught you and how much it teaches all of us who read your memoir. Um, to set this up, tell us all a little bit about who you are and where you came from. I am the daughter of South Asian immigrants. I grew up on Long Island. I became an author after having my daughter, which is something I want to talk about today, that I always say I became an author not despite motherhood, but because of motherhood. Mm. And I was in the middle of working on my second novel. I wrote my first novel when my daughter was an infant. I was in the middle of working on my second novel. My daughter was really young and in elementary school. When my mother, who was a geriatric psychiatrist, was in sudden need of emergency care due to her dementia. She was an expert in the very disease uh, that she was grappling with. And so she was very good 
at masking her symptoms until she couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and she actually ran clinical trials when she was at the peak of her career. She ran clinical trials for Aricept, which is the medication she would end up taking. Anyway, so I needed to bring her home to live with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was in my 30s. It was not a phase of life I was prepared for, but suddenly she needed help. And so I brought her home to live with me. And I wrote what we carry while I was living it, like while mm-hmm. I was caring for my mother, while caring for my young daughter. And that juncture really made me think a lot about caretaking and parenthood and my own childhood and these roles, mm-hmm. mother, daughter, what it means to parent. Mm-hmm. And literally and metaphorically what we carry, um, which is a lot. I I was curious about, as a writer, you being a writer, when you were becoming a writer, when you were in graduate school, when you were writing your first novel, what in your mind was the um, image of the type of person or the age of a person where someone writes their memoirs? Oh, my gosh. Well, first of all, even just writing at all. You know, I was in grad school to become an academic, not to mm. write novels. And so I thought like, oh, maybe one day when I retire, like when I'm in my 60s, maybe I'll try and write a novel then. It just felt like joining the circus or doing something <laughs> impossibly fun and joyous, but like as a serious person, you don't do that. Like you can't mm-hmm. make a career out of that. Mm-hmm. And especially I think as the daughter of immigrants, who was raised in this very pragmatic way, you know, it felt like, oh, to try and pursue something you love could put, you know, make you potentially homeless or something like it felt right. preposterous. So just pursuing writing felt risky and audacious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a memoir never felt like it was in the books for me. I thought, you know, okay, I can write fiction, but I would never write about my own life. Yeah. And while I was caring for my mother, I started writing these posts on social media about just kind of our daily life and little anecdotes because these interactions would happen with her that I couldn't quite figure out or decipher because I was in the middle of them and Mm -hmm. under the weight of them. And to my surprise, these posts resounded with people. So an editor reached out and said, would you be interested in writing a memoir? I said, I'm so flattered. I couldn't possibly. And that same night I wrote like 50 pages and I thought, Oh, maybe Hmm. she's right. Hmm. How I was curious as I was reading of how much you're having. So there's so much insight. There's so much awareness. um, There's so many putting the pieces together. How much of it was happening in real time for you versus you know, between the chapters or between the time, you know, what was that process like for you? Cause you, you, there's so much that you weave together that you didn't know was a part of the story. Right. So good question. Most of the book I wrote while I was living it. And I will say that I think the act of writing it allowed me to process it and reflect on it in ways that I wouldn't have otherwise. Mm -hmm. 
And I think, you know, sometimes it's so funny with life. We think something is going to be a burden, but it ends up being a gift. Yeah. Yeah. So you would think like, oh my God, if you're caring for your parent with dementia and you're caring for a young child and you don't have help and you're exhausted, like why add something to your plate like writing? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But actually writing was cathartic and it just enabled me to shift perspective and to see things from a different vantage point. So, you know, it made me remember once years and years ago when uh, we were on vacation, my daughter was like five years old. She noticed that there was a rainbow in the sky and she could only see it with her sunglasses on. Like when she took her sunglasses off, the rainbow Mm -hmm. disappeared And that is actually how I kind of think of this juncture in my life. Like on one hand, it was difficult. It was so hard to see my mother, who'd been this, you know, brilliant physician, to see her struggle. Yet I also got to see my mother in completely different lights. Mm -hmm. And I got to see aspects of her that I never would have known otherwise. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there was this kind of strange gift of that time period that I could appreciate more because I was writing about it. And she, I mean, she, as you write about her transformation of, you know, pragmatic, stoic, uh, intelligent slash brilliant, like um, piercing with her, like judgment, her clinical judgment and her decision making. Um, And what I think I would say her, um, quite um, well-developed boundaries, so to speak. And then as she progresses, you know, she becomes more childlike. And as, as she becomes more childlike, you have the opportunity to become more mom-like to her, but also to learn so much more about her life and thus a ton about your life. Yeah, that's exactly right. You put that so beautifully. And I love what you said about her very well-established boundaries. She was so guarded and had so much armor up. And she had this ability when I asked her about questions, you know, as one does as you're growing up and, you know, would say to her like, mom, how did you do it? And she would say, I don't know. I just did. And at the time when I was growing up, I took it as, oh, she's trying to reassure me or she's trying to tell me it'll all be fine. I didn't know at the time that she was covering up certain things and that she didn't want to talk about her experience and that she was really brushing me off. Um, And during her dementia, her armor came down. And so when I would ask that same question, you know, mom, how did you do it? I got very different answers that Mm -hmm. sort of exploded my whole understanding of her and you know, I learned of family secrets and I thought, oh my gosh, you are not the person I thought you were at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. And here I've been casting you in this role as superhero mom who did everything and was magical in her ability. Yeah. And it turns yeah. out she had, it was kind of a Wizard of Oz moment of, oh, here's the human being behind the curtain. And much of what I'd been seeing was an illusion. and. Part of me, of course, was angry and disappointed that she hadn't been truthful with me before. Yet I also 
felt compassion for her. When I thought about it, I thought, you know, the reason she lied to me, hid these things, had these boundaries up was because she didn't want to be judged. She didn't want to reveal how difficult and humbling parenting is, Mm -hmm. right? Like Mm -hmm. to really be honest about that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. uh, That is easy to want to cover up and gloss over, like to really get into those moments of um, those moments of parenthood that make us reckon with who we really are and our levels of patience and all of that, you know, like, so I thought, Oh, I, I get it. I get why she wanted to be the perfect mom, at least Mm -hmm. uh, in appearance. Well, and I was believing her answers to you too when you asked her all those questions. Like, I'm like, wow, man, she is tough. And it was making me think of my immigrant grandmother who had been through so much. And it was like, that's just what we did. We just got by. I don't know. We just did. And I'm like, yeah, like they they were another a breed of toughness. You know, it's like that is just what people did. What I'm curious about, and I know this is a hard question, and she's the psychiatrist, <laughs> but um, how much, you know, you talk, you write about the stories we tell, the narratives that we tell ourselves, the stories that we tell ourselves and how we we live through our stories how much do you think she literally kept from you consciously versus was the story she told herself that she believed? And I'm not talking about this in a dementia way. I mean, like the way all of us cope and have revised memories of how we we think things should be or cover up memories from trauma. Yeah, this question really gets at the heart of it. And this for me is what my book is really about. It's not about caretaking. It's not about, it's about this precise question of the stories we tell ourselves and the stories we walk around with um, about people in our lives, but also ourselves. So with my mother, you know, it's interesting that you bring up your immigrant grandmother. I think so often what happens, at least with my parents, as immigrants who came to this country from India, I like to say that their degrees came with them across the ocean, but their status and their sense of self and feelings of belonging and power, those things did not come in their suitcases. And so I think when they arrived here, they felt completely helpless and powerless and at the like they were at the bottom of society. And I think part of their coping mechanism was to kind of erect these myths about themselves. And, you know, when faced with a society that did not always treat them well. Um, This was before Elizabeth Gilbert's Eat, Love, Pray. This was Mm -hmm. before Mm -hmm. Alanis Morissette thanked India in a song. You know, like when they came here, people didn't know about India and really treated them often with hostility. So I think their coping mechanism was to kind of form this little mini republic in our household and tell these stories of themselves and India that made it seem larger than life so that they could feel that way. And also in what they brought and what they didn't brought in, your parents being very different people, um, this, like the status and the prestige of your mom being of a, a very high class back home in India and then a very different class as an immigrant in America. That's right. So my parents in India <clears throat> were Brahmins, the, you know, so upper caste, which is part of how they were able, of course, to come to the United States. 
So, so often we have this narrative of um, people who come to America, immigrants who come to America for the American dream and to improve their lives. For my parents, it was actually sort of the opposite, where in India, they had servants and they had a life of comfort. It's not what we typically picture of like third world country, you know, poor conditions. They lived very well there. Their plan was just to be in India for a few years, make some money, go back. And uh, I found this out later. I was the reason they ended up staying here. Mm. I was not a planned pregnancy. This is something mm-hmm. that came out during my mother's dementia. One of yeah. the things one learns. Well, your, you know, brother, truth- your brother is eight years older. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Right. My brother is eight years older. And so they thought, okay, we'll be here for a few years and then we'll go back to India and he'll really, you know, um, have grown up there. And people think of the term anchor babies as Mm. like, oh, you have a baby in the States in order to reside here. For my parents, it was the opposite where I came along and they were kind of like, oh, okay, Mm -hmm. maybe we're staying. It became harder for them to go back. Mm Mm-hmm. Your your parents' marriage was complicated. Um, your relationship with your dad was hard. <laughs> I'm just leave it there for a second. Um, you know, so many people I talk to and work with in um, my office, it's you just know what you know, and it's not until you look back that you realize, whoa. Um, I was traumatized. I, wow, that's abuse. And you write about some, some tough experiences um, with your dad and how he treated you. At what point did you become aware of that this isn't right? Yeah, what a good question. I mean, it's so interesting. I think on one hand, as a child, part of me always knew that what he did was not right. And I felt constant fear in his presence. Mm -hmm. So I would just hide from him Mm -hmm. and I would escape into books and, you know, into imaginative play. And as a kid, you just do what you need to do. You're like the flower that grows in the sidewalk crack, you know, where you Mm -hmm. find Mm -hmm. sun and water and you find ways to grow and thrive. So I would always say to my friends, like, oh, yeah, my dad and I don't have a great relationship, or oh, my dad has a temper. But it wasn't, and I and I would have said, like, oh, but it's not like abuse. Mm-hmm. Like I really didn't identify with that or think to call it that. And it was only when I had my daughter mm-hmm. that I suddenly started reprocessing my childhood. And I thought, wait a minute, like I it wasn't just that my father you know was physically abusive and emotionally abusive it was that really i grew up with like a climate of tremendous fear um and never felt safe um cuz he was so volatile and you never knew it would set him off and there was this high degree of like unpredictability so nothing you could do was ever right um and yeah, it was only when I became a mother that I thought, oh, that wasn't just a little bit wrong. That was like very wrong. And mm-hmm. um, 
He was not equipped to be a parent. And the other thing is that I think sometimes it's easy to point to things that are wrong. It's harder to point to neglect. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the salt mm-hmm. that isn't in the food. Like if, right. you, if it's not there, you don't know it's not there. So when I became a parent, I was suddenly like, wait a minute, my both of my parents never said, I love you mm-hmm. or hugged me or read to me. And the, that absence, right? Absence is a hard thing to kind of identify, but mm-hmm. um, that struck me really. It didn't really occur to me until my 30s. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when it often, every uh, so much occurs to us when we have kids of our own. I mean, so many awarenesses about our our own experience and how we're acting as parents, how we, we, we want to, or how we thought we wouldn't. And why are we acting away? You know, like it's so much comes to the surface. Um, and of course on this show, we always are talking about awareness and it's like being aware of where we came from and what we experienced and how that awareness has an impact on us in the moment and then us in our parenting. And you clearly you clearly embodied so much awareness through this process. And um, I think something that's very important for people to hear out there who is how does someone like you end up being such a nurturing, loving parent when you didn't receive that from your own? Yeah, you know, one thing that I want to address, I think that there's this misconception out there that if you grow up with violence, the only thing you know is violence. Mm-hmm. Or if you grew up without warmth and affection, that you don't know how to give those things. And I think actually it can be the opposite, where it's sort of like if you grew up, you know, with flavorless food, all you want is delicious food. Like you appreciate it more. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I think because of the ways in which I grew up, I really gave a lot of thought to how I want to be towards my daughter and what do I not want to do? And let me keep an eye on sort of joy and happiness and nurturing her and allowing her to be her and um, recognizing also that I'm not going to get it right. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I remember distinctly the first time that I apologized to my daughter Mm -hmm. because I remember thinking my parents never would have apologized to me, no matter what the circumstances. It was so unfathomable. Mm-hmm. And part of me thought, huh, I recognize in this moment that it is right for me to apologize to my daughter, but it felt like such new ground. Like it felt like going against all of my DNA. Mm-hmm. Um And I think a lot of us, you know, some of this has to do with my parents and our cultural heritage and all that. But I think so many of us grew up with parents who would not reflect or apologize or say, hey, you know, that moment the other day, like I I messed up or I mishandled that. And here's what I should have done. And and I think you're right. It's it's I 
my experience is it's it's generational and it's cross cultural, in the sense of um, you know parents are in charge and kids are supposed to listen to us and we're not supposed to make mistakes and even if we do that's just the way it kind of is and if you look back at each generation it was sort of the same thing and so i think one one of the um one of the many um positive developments of the parenting movement the modern parenting movement is really treating kids with respect and modeling for our kids how to be human, which means we make mistakes too. And we can apologize no matter how old we are. That's right. And I think so often we talk about parenting, contemporary parenting as a negative thing in terms of what Mm -hmm. it can engender with like helicopter parenting and snowplow, you know, all these sort of verbs that have come up. But I think there's a flip side, which is yes, there's a reflectiveness. We don't want to get carried away and have it become a source of, you know, constant anxiety. But to be thoughtful and mindful, nothing but good can come of that, I think. Um, yeah. And so one sort of uh, moment for me, I remember this is not strictly speaking a parenting story, but it has affected my parenting. When I was in grad school, I took a seminar with the philosopher Jacques Derrida. Mm. And, you know, he's like this brilliant French philosopher, Parisian, incredibly elegant. He wore like a white silk scarf and was always impeccably dressed. And we were all terrified of him. And I think it was like the second week or third week of our seminar, someone nervously asked a question. And he whipped around and he said, I do not know. I do not know the answer to your question. And he said it like so cheerfully. And he turned, you know, he turned to the whole room and he said, does anyone know the answer to this question? And it was such a powerful moment for me because I thought, oh, a truly brilliant mind can admit when they don't know something because they aren't trying to assert their authority. They aren't trying to pretend at anything. They're just kind of cheerfully open about where they are and unafraid and fearless and able to share uh, and be present. And that I thought of that a lot while parenting because it occurred to me like I never had like a, you don't get a practice kid. No. No. (laughs) It's the most important job of your life and the one that you want to do so well at, but you're thrust into it and you don't, know what you're doing. And I Mm -hmm. think to be okay with that and open with that is a good Mm -hmm. thing. And another element of this is, um, what you, what you write about with Zoe is, I think is learning so much from her. And I think part of this openness is how much our kids are here to teach us. Um, which again, I think is a is a more is a newer way for many parents to think about this because we're supposed to have all the answers and we're supposed to be right and they're supposed to listen, being more traditional here. But gosh, like Zoe has taught you so much. Zoe has taught me so much. And I think just her arrival really held up a mirror uh, for me where, you know, to go back to what I'd said earlier about how I'd thought like, oh, maybe I'll write a novel one day when I retire. 
And I remember being pregnant with her, like she hadn't even arrived yet, but I remember being pregnant and thinking, I would never say to my daughter, once you've found your dream, why don't you wait like six and a half decades to <laughs> pursue it? Right? Like you would, you would never say that. And I thought like, oh, if I'm going to say to her, I want more than anything for you to figure out your passion and for you to figure out what makes you happy and what makes you excited. And I want you to just go after that. Well, then that must apply to me too. Like, why am I not mm -hmm. pursuing my dreams? And I don't want to ever look at her and say like, oh, I always wanted to be a writer. I want to be able to look her in the eye and say, you know, maybe what I would say is I tried and it didn't work out and I wasn't able to get published, but I'm really glad I tried. I just wanted to be able to have a level of honesty with her. Um, and I think had she not arrived in my life, I would mm -hmm. have continued in some career that I wasn't totally happy with yeah. because I would have been yeah. too scared to actually right. go after what I wanted. Yeah. The other thing that occurred once um, she came and that you were so raw and vulnerable um, in writing about, and it's so important to discuss, is postpartum depression. And we're getting somewhere in terms of awareness, but I still think we have a ways to go. Um, what can you tell people out there who have experience, who might be experienced, who know people? About, like, What do they need to know about what it's like to have postpartum depression? Thank you so much for asking about this. This is something I'm so passionate about because you're right, even though it's 2021, we still really lack a vocabulary, I think, to talk about depression and other mental health issues and to do so openly. So for me, I suffered from crippling postpartum depression and anxiety after Zoe was born and I was only able to get help very quickly because I'm the daughter of a psychiatrist. So I recognized it for what it was. And I think if I didn't have that awareness, I just would have perceived myself as a failure of a mother. And I would have thought like, I'm not strong enough to do this job. I'm not good enough to do this job. It's very much like breaking a bone right when you're expected to run, you know? So when you become a parent, and I think especially a new mother, the expectations are so high for all the things you should be doing for your baby in order to be a quote-unquote good mom. And you want the experience of motherhood to look and feel a certain way and to be getting everything right and to be hitting it out of the park, but also to be like glowing and exuding happiness. And so you want to be like sprinting. And if you have postpartum depression or depression of any kind, it's like having a broken femur. You can't mm -hmm. put weight on that leg, no matter how mm -hmm. badly you want to sprint. Mm -hmm. And to expect yourself to sprint with a broken bone, it just, it's impossible. Mm -hmm. And I think in the same way that, you know, my hope is that one day we'll be able to talk about depression and mental health issues the same way that if you bumped into a friend who had a broken bone, you'd say, how are you? And, um, you know, what did your doctor say? And can I help? And, you know, 
it would be an open conversation and there would be sympathy as opposed to fear. Right. And I think so often when right. we hear that someone is depressed, we clam up because we're worried about saying the wrong thing. The other person ends up feeling more isolated and alone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I also think there's this other element of it. It's actually making me think of a, a story, your story about when you hurt your, you hurt your knee and your dad didn't believe that you really hurt your knee. So of course that's unusual because usually when you have a physical injury, people don't tell people that you're faking it or just try harder, you know, some of these things that you did experience. And I think that's the difference in mental health. If someone is anxious or someone is depressed, there's this feeling that a lot of people have, which is like, you know what? It's like, come on, mind over matter. Just like suck it up. You know, and if someone has a broken bone, you don't ever, you're like, oh man, how long is that going to take to heal? What's your treatment? What are you doing? How can I help? And for, you know, for just this parity, this equality of mental health and physical health, emotional health, spiritual, it's all connected and it's all very real. It's all very real. The difference is that with mental health issues, they're invisible. So you don't see the cast on the leg. You don't see the crutches. You don't see the visible evidence of the pain, but the pain is absolutely just as real. And the stigma around it, I think, heightens the pain. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing people do in addition to, yeah, mind over matter, like, come on, please, Mm -hmm. you can get out of bed. You can Mm -hmm. face the day. We all have to. Let's Mm -hmm. be a grown up. There's like that horrible voice. I think the other thing people do is they try and be helpful. This is well-intentioned, but they'll say like, oh, have you tried one of those special lamps or have yeah. you tried going for a walk or yeah. I've heard vitamin D can be helpful. And it's like, no, with, you know, that's like saying to someone with, you know, again, like a cracked femur, like, Oh, have you right. tried a massage? It's like, right. that's not right. going to no. help that person. No. Well, and there's, you know, there's always the debate about medicine and medication and that we are, you know, an overprescribing nation, um, which is true. That being said, the power of medicine, the power of um, pharmacology. And, you know, I appreciate like that. Would you, what would you, what do you attribute um, medicine to your finding, coming back to yourself? So for me, and, you know, I can only speak to like my own experience and my own journey. For me, when I was suffering from acute postpartum depression and, it felt like I was at the very bottom of a dark, endless well, Mm -hmm. and that there was no way to get into the light. I started Wellbutrin, an antidepressant. um, And within two weeks, it was like having the power come back after a storm. Mm. It was unbelievable. I mean, I woke up one morning and it was like, oh, the lights are back on. And I remember running down the hall to Zoe's room. She was asleep in her crib. And I looked at her and I thought, oh my God, this is how I'm supposed to feel. Like, this is what I've been wanting to feel. I looked at her and I had tears in my eyes. They were the good kind. And I just felt like myself again. And I was so grateful mm-hmm. to medication and to science because. In my particular case, without medication, I don't think I would have been able to 
you know, other things would not have worked for me because the depression was so acute. That's not true for everyone, but it was true for me. Right. And, and how of all the ways that your mom impacted your life in so many different ways, you know, she being the, like, she's triple board certified. She knew everything about medicine and she was like, this is what you need. This is what you need to do. And it's like, in, in, in ways which people will read where she couldn't be there for you, um, this was a way she could. That's right. She had very particular and unique ways in which <laughs> she was profoundly helpful to me. Mm-hmm. You know, one of them was that she tore up my psychiatrist's prescription and rewrote it and, yes, <laughs> took charge in that moment because that was her area of expertise. The other thing was, you know when she was older, this is going to sound so strange, but she had signed up for a long-term life insurance. And I remember when I found that out, I thought her mother had had dementia. So I think my mother always saw it coming. Like she knew it was in her fate. And I think when she first felt the symptoms pretty early on, she recognized them. And I remember thinking, you know, my mother never wrote me a love letter where she mm-hmm. never had like the framed photographs of us um, or like the handprint from kindergarten, you mm-hmm. know, in baked in clay or any of those things. But what she had was ironclad life insurance. And that to me, it was her way of saying, I have thought of you, I have planned for this mm-hmm. and I want you to not be burdened. Mm-hmm. And that as with her, care for me, you know, her way of caring for me during my depression, it was her way of being there for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, You also write about the importance. I mean, this really is about motherhood from all directions and um, what mothers carry. You talk about, you know, the need to find oneself, self-care, you know, carving out a time, a semblance of a life. And that led you to the gym <laughs> and to weightlifting and and to being a legitimate weightlifter. So like, tell us that this is like such a great story and it's become such an important part of your life. It has become a huge part of my life. I still want to crack up hysterically when the subject comes up because I, <laughs> I always think if only I could go back to like my 10-year-old self. I was such a bookworm. I was so introspective. I was the complete opposite of anything athletic. You know, I was like the last kid to get picked for the team. I dreaded gym class, all of that. And a lot of that had to do, again, with like the stories we grew up with. Like part of me thought, this is going to sound ridiculous. But as a child, part of me truly thought like, I'm Asian. My identity is not athletic which is not something I ever would have said, but it was just something I kind of internally thought, like, oh, my job is to be good at school. Mm-hmm. And it was also that um, my parents didn't do anything athletic. And um, my father was also very harsh on me whenever I would try and join a sports team. He kind of like beat it out of me. Um, and so, yeah, when Zoe was born and then when she was a toddler, I remember kind of being perplexed by all of the physical stuff, like kids dance and they jump around. And I remember being like, I want to 
do this, but I sort of don't know how to like be in my body. I'm so used to just being in my head. And I thought, okay, I don't just want to like assign myself a sport or go to the gym because I'm supposed to, because kids pick up on everything. So I thought what I really want is to have like a genuine relationship with fitness and model that for her in a way that's real and not like obligatory, oh, I'm going to go on the elliptical because I should. And so I joined a gym and I was lucky enough that I was able to hire a trainer. Coach Lou. Um, Coach Lewis, yes. And I said to him, listen, I just want to love fitness. And he said, okay, well, is there anything you've ever wanted, you know, really, really wanted to do? And I thought, well, I've always wanted to do a pull-up, but I don't think that's physically possible for me. And he said, oh, we'll get you doing pull-ups. We'll get you doing set after set of pull-ups. And that started my journey into weightlifting, which I immediately found empowering and liberating. And um, I just felt so good doing it. What I like to say is that weightlifting for me is not really about picking things up. It's about finally setting them down. Hmm. Hmm. And nice. I think that, yeah. <laughs> that identity of like, oh, you're not athletic and you're not supposed to take up space and you're supposed to, you know, be cooperative and not draw attention to yourself and just kind of go through life quietly and so many of so much of that gets just wiped out <laughs> in the mm-hmm. best way when yeah. you walk up to you know a bar and lift 300 pounds you just feel i'm standing up straighter as i'm talking like you just feel yeah. Yeah. empowered and big and i think women especially are often taught to not occupy space. And when you're weightlifting, you occupy space and it feels great. So how many pull-ups is in your regular daily diet these days? <laughs> well, these days I'm not at my peak because I'm yeah. still trying to get back to pre-pandemic numbers. Yeah. I couldn't go to the gym for a while. I will tell you yeah. for a while, I was doing pull-ups with weight chained to me. Oh. So I would have like a 45 pound plate attached to me while I was doing pull-ups. And I got to the point where I could easily do like five sets of 10. Wow. Um, wow. My peak weightlifting numbers are squat 395 pounds, deadlift 315 pounds, and bench 185 pounds. Wow. Wow. So impressive. So impressive. Um and I know like you started with, um, it's like lifting, lifting for your life, you know, it's like lifting for survival. And then I just, it just seemed as it progressed. It's like, it's like part of your, your life force, like part of what make what drives you, what, what helps you thrive. Yeah. I mean, that's really what it's about for me. The numbers are fun to talk about, but yeah. really it's about the psychological release and clarity that I experience, the numbers don't really matter. When I leave the gym after you know a day of lifting or an hour of lifting or whatever, 
I just feel like my best self because I feel like I've left the, it's kind of like leaving a therapist's office after a Mm -hmm. really good session. You feel like, oh, I've left something behind and I feel freer. Mm -hmm. Again, like I've put something down. Yeah. So I think to find that, to find the things that give you genuine relief and, you know, the ability to kind of breathe and to create space for yourself, those things are so necessary and they're not luxuries. Mm -hmm. You know, putting your oxygen mask on, as they tell you to do in the safety Mm -hmm. video in flight, Mm -hmm. that's not a luxury thing. That's a necessity. And we need that oxygen most when we're in crisis and when we're dealing with difficult things. Mm-hmm. So when I'm, yeah. there's that Deepak Chopra line, I think, where he says, you know, I try and meditate every day. And when I'm really, really busy and really stressed out and I just don't have time for it, I meditate twice a day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What, what, have you learned from your experience of caring for your mom and parenting Zoe to this point in your life? What have you learned about motherhood? What I have learned from caretaking and motherhood and this juncture in my life is that I think at the end of the day, parenting really offers us a do-over. I think it's a chance to get things right. And in my case, my mother didn't do certain things for me and wasn't there for me. And strangely, in doing those things for my mother and being there for her in ways that she wasn't for me, I had the experience of repairing something in myself. And it was almost as though it was like being on a movie set and there was like a director who said, okay, Maya, why don't we have you in the role of mother instead of daughter? And let's redo this scene a different way. And all that mattered was that when the scene played out with me caring for my mother, that there suddenly was love and care and warmth and, you know, so many things that had been missing from my childhood that they were present. And in giving them to her, I strangely felt like I was giving them to myself. Mm -hmm. So I think this is like the magic of parenting is that sometimes when we think we are being maternal or when we think we're being selfless, we're actually doing like deeply reparative work. I think we do what wasn't done for us. Yeah. And sometimes when we're at our most, you know, quote unquote parental, we're actually not being parents. I think in those moments, we're thinking back to childhood and thinking back to needs that didn't get met and addressing those and kind of finding ourselves in those moments. Mm Mm-hmm. What you described is what we call in the uh, in the therapy room the corrective emotional experience, huh. right? And that that takes that can take form in so many ways. Obviously, it doesn't have, not have to happen in the therapy office. It happens in real life, taking on certain roles and going through certain 
actions as you described. Um, so that's so powerful. That's so powerful how you can give what you did not get and yet heal a p- the part of you that suffered from that lack. Yes. And I think an important kind of corollary to that is to also make sure, like to recognize when you are repairing something in yourself and to not project those things onto your kids. It's so easy Mm -hmm. sometimes to do things for our children that we think are for them, Mm -hmm. but we're really addressing something that's from our past. So for me, you know, with my daughter, which was first, you know, when she was in toddlerhood, I was like fixated on her hair. And I would always like brush it and braid it and have it be perfect. And, you know, and at a certain point she said, mommy, I don't like braids. I don't, you know, could we like not put my hair up in a ponytail? And she started having opinions and I listened to her and it dawned on me, oh, when I was growing up, I got teased about my hair constantly because I was the only, you know, Mm-hmm. South Asian person in my school. I had ethnic hair that looked very yeah. different. And I thought like, oh, this is, you know, I'm doing this for me and I'm projecting something onto her. And instead I want to just kind of give her the space and the freedom to, yeah, it's her hair. It's not yeah. my hair. So important for us to, to, to know, you know, use the B where the boundaries again, like where are the boundaries around us and on our kids and what is about us and what is actually about them. And it's hard, but just to ask the question, is this, is this about me or is this about them? Am I wanting them to do this really for them? Because we do have these narratives and stories like this is for you. I'm doing this for you. And um, these are these little human beings that have their own, their own paths and their own ideas. And um, how can we guide them and encourage them and um, let them become who they are meant to be? That's exactly right. And for me, at least one thing that helps is when I'm at my best parentally, I feel a kind of um, quiet in my head where I'm tuned into Zoe I'm just letting her be and I'm listening to her versus other times when I'm stressed out or thinking about, you know, fears that I have or worries that I have or anxieties I have about her. There's a kind of static or noise where I'm really more tuned into me and not so much to her. So that's my way of kind of checking mm-hmm. in with myself or trying to mm-hmm. calibrate yeah. that. Well, today's show has included several parent footprint moments that you all have heard. And now we're doing the official one. So here we go. All right, Maya, tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or an awareness about your parents. And this new awareness had a positive impact on yourself, your child, your life, and those you love. I remember when I was a girl and my father in his worst moments would say to me, one of the things that would bring me to tears, he would say, who do you think you are? And he would say, you know, you're just a worthless girl. Who are, who are you to think that you're more than that? And he really didn't like the idea of me writing creatively. He thought it was a complete waste of time. He would say, I didn't come to this country for you to be 
wasting your time this way. Writing is frivolous. It's a worthless activity. It bothered him so much that he would go through my room, my bedroom, and like root through my drawers and my trash. And if he found creative writing, he would tear it up and try and like shame me with it. And he would say, what do you think you are? An artist? A writer? Like, who are you? And I remember when my daughter was born, looking at her and thinking, and just feeling that like unconditional, limitless love. And suddenly thinking of those words in a very different way and thinking, who are you? I want to know the answer to that question fully and completely and luxuriously and expansively. And it's not, who are you to think that you deserve to explore? It's who are you not to explore that? Of course you should explore that. And because it applied to her, again, it somehow transferred to me. And I thought, my daughter will never really be able to take up that question fully and expansively if I don't do it for myself. And I think part of the reason my father was so miserable and blocked and you know, constricting as a parent was because he'd never given himself that space to explore his own creativity or the different sides of himself. And so he resented me doing it. So that was a real kind of 180 moment for me of thinking, I want to break that and I want to give it to my daughter by giving it to myself and by being quote unquote selfish in pursuing my dreams, I will be opening up roads for my daughter and showing her that that's allowed and not only allowed, but good. Yes. Changing the narrative. Changing the narrative. We always have the ability to change our stories. Hmm. Well, Maya, thank you for sharing your story with everyone all over the world. I mean, it's a story that, um, it's just, it's a story that, um, it, it's, it's emotional, it's moving and, and ultimately it's healing. Um, and it gives hope to everyone, um, on, on, on being human. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Dan. And thank you for creating the space for these kinds of conversations, because I really do think sometimes we shy away from what's scary. You know, we're scared to say certain things or go certain places emotionally, but I think to do so is really empowering and liberating and allows people to feel connection and to know that they're not alone. So thank you for yeah. creating this community. It's been a pleasure talking with you. So Maya, what are you up to these days? What are you working on? So I don't know if people who have read what we carry, sometimes they know this and sometimes they don't. In the years following the events of what we carry, uh, Noah and I have since very amicably divorced. Zoe has equal time between our two households during the pandemic. She actually had this moment where she turned to me and said, mommy, 
I'm so glad I have two houses I can go to because I would go nuts if I only had to look at the same (laughs) kitchen. And I thought, oh my God, if only I could go back to myself when I was like grappling with this question of, am I destroying my child's life? Is this like the worst thing to do? If I could fast forward to this moment and know that we all come through happier on the other side. So yes, I'm working on a series of essays on this exact question, on the subject of joy and joyful outcomes and how often what leads to happiness is closely tied to terror. So I think often things where we think, oh, I couldn't possibly do that. That would be like the wrong thing to do or the bad thing to do, or I can't give myself permission to do that. If we kind of take that leap, what's on the other side can be true happiness because instead of telling ourselves and sort of beating ourselves up with here's how my life is supposed to look or here's the quote unquote right thing to do, those decisions can be really stifling and oppressive. And again, with our children in mind, it's like, what's the lesson there that you should stay in a relationship no matter what, or you should stay in a situation that isn't working for you? Like if you wouldn't want your child to feel that way or think that way or absorb that, then it becomes, okay, well, let me model something different, but it's scary. Yes. often so scary to contemplate actually choosing ourselves. And um, for me, the things that have led to the most joyful outcomes are things that I wouldn't talk about in like a job interview. You know, it's things like, my divorce, which sound negative, but have led to being happier and freer as a person. Mm-hmm. We are definitely going to have to have another conversation. Okay. <laughs> I think so too. Because we want to know how to do that. Um, Phil and I are looking at each other, nodding our heads. We're like, okay, we want to know. <laughs> let's, let's, like, we want to know how to go through that fear and find joy in so many different aspects of life, right? It, it just applies to so many things. Yeah. It applies to so much. And I think so many of us are scared to do certain things. But when we do them, we show ourselves that when you bet on yourself, that's the best feeling. When you take that running leap, it's not about success or it's not about, you know, it's about saying to yourself, you are worth this risk. Mm-hmm. Yes, you are, everyone. You're worth it. Please tell everyone where they can uh, continue to follow you and your work. Oh, uh, well, my website is mayalang.com. I'm on Instagram and Facebook and social media places at Maya S. Lang. And I would love to hear from people who follow you. Um, so yeah, thank you. All right. Another awesome conversation, inspiring, um, motivating. I am contemplating working out later today. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Everyone go work out and do pull-ups and write novels and get it all done empowering so empowering 
All right, everyone, please share this episode with anyone who you think will benefit. Uh, We love you being a part of our community and welcome everyone you know. Be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself that guiding question every day. What footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummer Man, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com forward slash ads. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.